Chris, before you turn those off, can you go back to the church directory slide? I think it was two or three back. I want to just say a word about our church directory. Oh, if my cord will let me. We, um, we get started on Tuesday. It's going to be about three weeks of pictures. We actually had uh, people show up this week thinking that it might have been this week. But if you have not signed up, it's not too late. You can sign up online. We'd love to have you do that. We're hoping to have these directories uh, sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas. If you see Adam running around with a camera, he may be on stage this morning. Don't wave at him, number one, and don't worry, number two. We're trying to take some pictures for our directory, but um, it's going to be a really special time. Uh, it doesn't look like we're going to get to it, but um, I think we've got some information in the bulletin. So again, church directory is here. It's going to be a, a real blessing. Please sign up if you have not already. Grab your Bibles. You're going to need your Bibles this morning. I'm going to have you bouncing all over the place. I want you to start with Acts chapter 9. But we are in week 2 of a short four-week series entitled The Practical Atheist. And it's based on a book by a preacher from Oklahoma. His name is Craig Groeschel. The book is The Christian Atheist. How many of you, by the way, have read that book or are familiar with that book? Anybody here? I know a couple of you have shared with me. We actually ordered 20 copies this week. We're going to sell them at cost. We're hoping to have them in by next week. So if you'd be interested, just jot a note. Give it to Karen Rice or Peggy or to myself. Uh, we were able to get a really good deal on them. I think they're going to be under $10. They retail at closer to 20 But in this book, Groeschel makes a, I guess, a confession where he confesses that for much of his life, he was what he calls a Christian atheist, a practical atheist. And I have to be honest with you, just that title alone kind of makes me nervous, kind of turns my stomach a little bit. Some of you made comments to me kind of leading up to this, like, who in the world would ever admit that they're a Christian atheist? Who in the world would ever buy into anything along those lines? And what Groeschel says is that through a series of events, he realized that he was calling himself a Christian. He was living the life that he thought was Christian. But he realized as he went through his daily goings and comings and events and relationships and interactions, he realized in many ways he was living his life more like an atheist than he was a Christian. Last week, we tackled this big idea of I believe in God, but I don't fear him. And we kind of blasted you with scripture after scripture after scripture from the Old Testament where God, through his leaders at the time, let his people know how incredibly important it is to fear him. And then we gave you some examples of what it looked like to either fear God or to not fear him at all. We looked at Abraham and how Abraham truly feared God. That was the most important thing in his life and God blessed him because of it. And then we looked at one of the many evil kings of Israel or Judah, King Jehoiakim, the account in Jeremiah 36, where the word of the Lord came to him in written form through a prophet. And remember what he did with the word that came to him, the scroll? He cut it off as it was being read, and he burned it in the fire. And then I took a book. I was hoping you would think it was a Bible. It really wasn't. And I, I, I cut out pages to try to illustrate for you. That's what we do when we try to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. 
Just enough church, just enough Jesus, just enough Christianity to get to heaven. But we don't really take his word seriously. We're buying the lie of Christian atheism. This week we're going to look at this idea of, I believe in God, but let's don't go overboard. I believe in God, but let's don't get crazy. Have you ever met somebody that you think they've went a little overboard in, in some aspect of their life? Anybody here? Anybody know anybody that maybe is a little over the top? You're kidding me. You don't know anybody? I know all kinds of people that are over the top. I know all kinds of people. Their life absolutely revolves around something that's not very healthy. When the Philadelphia Eagles went to the Super Bowl, I think it's been six or seven years, um, one of the major newspapers in Philadelphia chronicled how hundreds of Eagles football fans took second mortgages on their home just to be able to buy Super Bowl tickets. I wonder how they felt when they watched the Eagles lose in the Super Bowl that year. I mean, I would say in many ways, that's overboard. That's over the top. And I think if we're being honest this morning, this is off script, this isn't in the notes, but I think we all probably have people in our life that when we've been the most passionate for Jesus, we've been the most on fire when it comes to faith, We've had people maybe say to us or probably think, you know, calm down, slow down, D don't go overboard, don't be too extreme. It's okay if you want to go to church, it's okay if you want to give them a little bit of your money, it's okay if you want to volunteer some time, but let's don't go overboard. Well, what's the definition of a practical atheist? Let me give you this definition we rolled out last week. A practical atheist is someone that believes in God, but lives as if he doesn't exist. Well, what, what's that mean? What's that mean to believe in God, but to live as if he doesn't exist? It means when a crisis comes, in many ways you're a person with no faith at all. It means that when we say, well, let's pray about something, you wonder out loud, and some of you have shared with me this struggle. Does prayer work? Is there really any power in prayer? I'm going to tackle that before this series is over. A practical atheist is someone who believes in God, but lives as if he doesn't exist. Question this morning. I want all of you to answer it. Not out loud, but I want you to answer it. It's a rhetorical question. When is the last time that you were really on fire for God. Or maybe name a time when you feel like that was kind of the, the peak. That was kind of the pinnacle. That's when I was just, nothing else mattered. All that I was focused on was my relationship with the Lord. When is the time in your life when you were the most on fire for God? We'll have kids come back from week, high school students or junior high, come back from mission trips or weeks of church camp or CIY conference, and I love hearing uh, the testimonies that they share. I love when they sit down and they share with me and with other staff members and other, uh, other members of the congregation the dreams that they have for their next year. That's just happened in the last couple of years, and it almost brings tears to my eyes. And I have to confess to you, there's times that I find myself saying, but wouldn't it be great to be on fire like that. 
Wouldn't it be great to have a faith like that? Wouldn't it be great to, to go overboard and to not really care what anyone else thought? Well, let's talk about this idea of being on fire for God. And this morning, I want to throw out for you, last week we looked at two Old Testament examples when it came to fearing God. This week, I want to give you two New Testament examples of individuals as it relates to passion. One is an individual, one is a church. And I want to start with um, a guy you know as the Apostle Paul. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. But before he was Paul, his name was Saul. And before he was the greatest missionary the, the world and the church had ever seen, he really believed with all his heart that what was going on in the name of Jesus, what Peter and John and the other disciples were doing, it wasn't just a problem. He believed it was the greatest problem facing the church in that day. And he set out to stop each and every Christ follower that he could. He thought they were heretics. He thought it was blasphemy times 50. And he went so far that he actually killed, he believed in the name of the Lord to silence people preaching Jesus. Stephen. Stephen's one of the, um, the undervalued heroes of the faith listed in the Bible. Stephen gave an incredible, incredible speech in Acts chapter 7. And it was one of those kind of in your face. You remember when the preacher used to kind of be in your face? He'd pound the pulpit and you, you just felt like your toes were being jumped on. I mean, it's that times 50 in Acts chapter 7. He's looking at the Sanhedrin and he has given it to the religious leaders of the day. And they were so angry at the end of Acts chapter 7 that they killed him. They stoned him to death. And the book of Acts tells us that there was Saul, Saul very zealous for God, he believed, presiding over this execution. Well, in Acts chapter 9, Saul's not done. Killing Stephen's not enough. He's ready to go after Peter and John and the others, and he's on the way to Damascus to try to find Christ followers, and this incredible thing happens to him. He is blinded by this incredible light, and when I say blinded, I mean he can't see. And he hears a voice. And here's what the voice says. Saul, Saul, this is in verse 4, why do you persecute me? Saul asks an obvious question. Who are you, Lord? See, don't forget, he thought he was doing the work of the Lord. Who are you, Lord? And here's the voice. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up. Go to the city, and you'll be told what you must do. It's a transformation unlike any in the Bible. Maybe the most anti-Christian element in the first century world literally sees the light, and he's now going to play for God's team. He thought he was already, but he's now going to not just be a Christ follower. He's going to be a Christ proclaimer. And, and I'm not going to read all of Acts chapter 9. I'd encourage you in your personal study to spend time in Acts chapter 9. 
But here's what I want you to see. Jump all the way down to verse 19. Halfway through the verse, a new paragraph begins. And this is after he's went into the city. And a guy by the name of Ananias has, has reached out to him. And he's able to regain his vision. And he's baptized. And, and he's now a Christ follower. This is what's next for his life. Look at verse 19. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once, let me say that again, at once, let me say that a third time, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. You want to talk about trading teams? This is the most radical transformation in God's Word. It's greater than if Bill Clinton came out today and said he's the new party chair for the Republican National Committee. That'd be radical, wouldn't it? Okay, this is more radical. It's more radical than if Bobby Knight came out of retirement and began to coach the University of Illinois basketball team. It's more radical than that. It's more radical than if Albert Pujols said, I'm tired of playing for the dark side and I'm moving to the north side of Chicago. That might happen. Maybe. This is radical. This is crazy. You know, I just thought of a word. This is overboard. He's gone overboard. And when Saul became a Christ follower, there was no looking back. We're getting ready as a church to challenge you to read through the New Testament in 75 days. Three or four chapters a day is what we're going to ask you to do. And if you accept that challenge beginning September 12, you will read all of the books. We, we think that Paul wrote as many as 13 New Testament letters. And you're not going to see kind of a, a lukewarm, mamsy-pamsy kind of disciple. You know what you're going to see? You're going to see someone that's passionate. You're going to see someone that is unashamed to take a stand in any and every situation. You're going to see someone that changes his world in a radical way for Christ. I, I hope you'll take that challenge. I hope you'll say yes for 75 days. I will read three or four chapters of the day. You will never be the same. It will change you. Please consider taking that challenge. Example one, Saul. I'd say he went overboard. Well, there's a second example, and it's not really an individual. It is a church. Grab, and, grab your Bible and go all the way to the end of the Bible. The very last book in the Bible is the book of Revelation. And right there, some people are like, whoa, Revelation. Are we going to talk about visions? And are we going to see if there's, you know, helicopters as locusts? And we're not, we're not going down that road this morning, okay? So, so be, be, be calm, relaxed, it's okay. But what I am going to tell you is that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see letters from Jesus to seven churches in Asia Minor during the day. And they're all different churches. They all have different stories up to that point. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And some of the churches are very faithful, like the church at Philadelphia. The church at Smyrna was a, was a persecuted church during the day. 
In fact, I could kind of give you a tag phrase for each of the seven, but I want to look at this final church, the church at Laodicea, because the word that really comes to mind, I said it already in the message, maybe you caught it, is the term lukewarm. Lukewarm. Is lukewarm good? When you hear lukewarm, do you strive to be lukewarm? Well, listen to what the Lord has to say to this church. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words. These are, the, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Translation should probably say vomit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear. So you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. And he with me, to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You're neither hot nor cold, how I wish you were one or the other. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. When I was 13 years old, um, I can't even tell this illustration without smiling. When I was 13 years old, one of my friends and I, we played summer league baseball, and we'd been watching the major league game of the week, and we kept noticing that a lot of baseball players kind of had like a big circle on their butt. And we didn't know what that was. And you know what that is, don't you, many of you? It's, it's snuff, skull, Copenhagen, whatever it may be. So we got this great idea that we were going to be able to be much better hitters and much better fielders if we got some of this stuff, and I, we didn't even really know what to do with it, but I, my grandpa, before he passed away, I mean, I, I can remember him dipping and spitting and the spit bowl and all of that. So we decided this was the plan. So we went to a store, and I, why someone would sell two 13-year-olds this, I have no idea. But we said, give us the best you got, and he gave us a, a big, t a little tin of Copenhagen. Now, I have to just be honest with you. I don't know one from the other, but the one thing I learned real quickly about Copenhagen is it's very, very fine very, very fine. So we took a whole bunch, and we put it in our lip, and man, we thought we looked so cool. We remember some of our heroes of the day having that little bulge there, and we started riding our bike. If you've ever been to Champaign-Urbana, we were riding on Windsor Road, which is another really stupid thing that 13-year-olds were riding on Windsor Road, but all of a sudden, for some reason, I'd not done enough spitting of the tobacco juice out. I had swallowed a bunch of it, and my friend looked at me and said, you don't look good. And I have to tell you, I didn't feel good. And within about 15 seconds, I was on my hands and knees on Windsor Road, puking my guts out. Whatever I'd had for lunch that day and then some was all over the road. People were slowing down their carts. Are you okay? Can we take you home? And I mean, white as a ghost. And I have to tell you, this is not an exaggeration. To this day, if I'm around somebody that's got dip, my stomach starts to turn. That's some sort of a psychological issue that I'm dealing with. It's actually probably the best thing that ever happened to me in many ways. 
But I have to tell you, at that moment, that's as low as it gets on your hands and your knees on the side of a busy road, puking your guts out. And yet, that's exactly the picture I want in your mind this morning. Because the Lord says to the lukewarm Christian, I want to puke you out of my mouth. Your lukewarmness, your passiveness, your one foot in the church, one foot in the world, disgusts me so much, I want to vomit. I want to puke. I want to spit you out of my mouth. See, we laugh about a lot of things, but if we were to define many an American Christian today, I think it would be fair to say many have bought the lie of lukewarm Christianity. Many have, have bought the lie of a lukewarm faith. And so for the rest of the message this morning, this is going to kind of be a, this kind of going to be a shotgun format. I'm going to be throwing, it, throwing, throwing these at you pretty quickly, but 10 staples of lukewarm Christians. Ten staples of lukewarm Christians. You might be a lukewarm Christian if you crave acceptance from people more than acceptance from God. Anyone? You might be a lukewarm Christian if you rarely share your faith in Christ. Don't go overboard. Don't be too extreme. I was reading this week in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I came across a verse we just fly by much of the time. Paul reminding the Corinthians, he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. It rings true for us today. Think about all the people that you encounter day in, day out that don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You might be lukewarm if you rarely share your faith. Number three, you might be a lukewarm Christian if you'll do whatever it takes to alleviate your guilt. Number four, you might be a lukewarm Christian if you think more about life on earth than eternity in heaven. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to put this scripture up on the screen. It says, this description, it says, you are aliens and strangers in this world. My first ministry was in Plano, Illinois. It was a weekend ministry most of the time. I was a, a full-time college student during the time. And about the third month that I was there, one of the, the major factories in the area had major cutbacks, and um, several individuals from our church just lost their jobs. And many of you have been there. You've been down that road. One family in particular that I was pretty close with um, the husband had a really good job, seventy-five, eighty thousand dollars This was 1989, and he, he was let go completely, and he couldn't find anything. And I remember when they had to put their really awesome home on the lake near Samanach on the market, and they had to go from about a 3,000 square foot, I'd call it a luxury home, to a much more modest 16, 17 square foot home. And the difference between the husband and the wife was unbelievable. Wife, she grew incredibly during that trial and that tribulation. She grew closer to the Lord in many ways. 
She's one of the people that I really consider a leader during my time there, just in growing in faith, just watching her, how she dealt with adversity. But my friend Dick, he just couldn't get over the fact that he wasn't going to be able to invite people over to his house anymore. He was going to be too ashamed. And that he wasn't going to be able to go on that great fishing trip. And he wasn't going to be able to, to go to seven or eight Cub games every year. I, he loved the things of this earth. And we all do. Don't get me wrong. Put that number four back up for just a minute, please. But what do you think is most important? The things of this earth or our future life? In heaven. Number five, you might be a lukewarm Christian if you gauge your morality by comparing yourself to others. This is huge, and I'm guilty at times. Well, I may not have my tongue under control all the time, but I'm certainly not as bad as she is. I may not, you know, refuse to gossip completely, but I'm nothing like him. You might be a lukewarm Christian if you gauge your morality by comparing yourself to others. Number six, you might be a lukewarm Christian if you want to be saved from the penalty of sin without changing your life. I think that is huge for many of us. We're scared of hell. It's good, by the way, to be scared of hell. That's a healthy feeling as it relates to the eternal gnashing of teeth and wailing. Don't get me wrong, but that's not the most important reason to be a Christ follower. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come to bring you life and life to the full. And I'll make the case and I'll argue with anybody today. Life with Jesus on this earth is 10 times better than life without Jesus on this earth. That's the abundant life. That's the full life Jesus talks about. Number seven, you might be a lukewarm Christian if you only turn to God when you're in a bind. Number eight, you might be a lukewarm Christian if you give only when it doesn't hinder your lifestyle or your standard of living. I'll give, but I'm not going to go overboard. I'll give, but it's going to be a controlled give. Number nine, you might be a lukewarm Christian if you're not much different than the rest of this world. I shared with you um, the aliens and strangers passage in 1 Peter 2. He goes on in verse 12 and says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, you may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. I love that phrase. I highlighted it. Live such good lives. Not so we can take a victory lap. Look at us. Not so we break our arm patting ourselves on the back. But so that people look at you and say, wow, there is something different about him. There is something different about her. They're not like everyone else. Christ really makes a difference in their life. And then number 10, you might be a lukewarm Christian if you want the benefits of what Christ did without conforming to who Christ is. And when I hear that language, I immediately think of Romans 12. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I, I really need to share this with you this morning. Um, this isn't fun to preach, okay? I, I just want to let you know. I, I'm a happy guy. I'm a positive guy. Um, I want to make you laugh. I want to make you smile. 
I want to have fun. But I really believe that this idea of one foot in the, the church and one foot in the world, one, one foot with Christ, one foot with the world, it, it's um, reaching epidemic proportions in places like Clinton, Illinois. More and more people are saying, I believe in God, but they're living their life like he doesn't exist. They're very reserved. They're very laid back. They're very controlled. And when I read the life of the Apostle Paul and so many other people in Scripture, when I go back to church history and I, I, I read about some of the great heroes of the faith in the years after Bible times, I'm reminded that many of them had a similar characteristic. They went overboard for the Lord. They were on fire for the Lord. I, I've never played poker, okay? I need to tell you that. But my bottom line with you this morning is poker language. Here's my question for you. Are you all in for the Lord? Or just a little bit. Are you all in? Or not too much? I want to leave you with a, a story that really changed me this week. I'd never heard this story. I didn't know who Karen Watson was. But Karen Watson had made the decision to be a missionary. She worked with the Southern Baptist Missionary Association. And she was one of the first people that went into Iraq after the, the liberation took place a decade ago. And before one journey, she went to see her pastor at her church in California, and she gave him a letter, and she said, only open this letter if I die. And they said, well, you're not going to die. God's going to be with you. She said, just, just trust me on this. Keep it in your drawer. But if for some reason the Lord calls me home, I want you to read this, and I want you to share it. Here's her letter. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this in the event of death. When God calls, there's no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place, I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. The missionary heart, it cares more than some think is wise. It risks more than some think is safe. It dreams more than some think is practical. It expects more than some think is possible. I was not called to comfort or to success. I was called to obedience. There is no joy outside knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too, and my church family. In his care, Karen. She died on March 15, 2004, when unknown assailants attacked her and her team of missionaries. And at her funeral, one of the testimonies that was shared about her life is this is somebody that went overboard for the Lord. And so I want to leave you with two questions this morning as we wrap up. Question number one, what's your story? What are you doing? Where are you going? And number two, 
Are you ready to go overboard? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for, um, for challenging us through your word. Help us to never forget that we are aliens and strangers in this world. And it truly is all about Jesus. It's my prayer that today and this month as we, we study this topic that really isn't a lot of fun. That we'll realize what your call really is all about. It's not a call of safety. It's not a call of comfort. It's a call of life change. Help us to never grow weary of going overboard for you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. It is invitation time, as it is every Sunday at our church. And if you have a decision to make for Jesus Christ this morning, I I just invite you to come forward as this song is being sung. And if you're not a big public decision kind of person, I want to just remind you, um, our office is open during the week. I'd love to meet with you. Ernie would love to meet with you. Kent would love to meet with you. Adam, Jim, the whole staff. Um, It really is all about Jesus. Let's stand together as we sing our commitment song.